From Pure Advantage, I'm Simon Miller. Welcome to our podcast. The destination for leading-edge discussion with some of the world's experts in green growth, regenerative development, business and climate change. Nature's called upon us to think differently and tell a new story for a better New Zealand and the world. It's great to have you with us. In this podcast, our host and author, Alina Siegfried, talks with Greg Hart from Mangarara Station, along with Gary Williams, permaculturist, soil and water engineer. The panellists discuss how regenerative farming is working for them in a climate-impacted world, and they outline practices that build more resilient ecosystems on their agricultural landscapes. Enjoy. Kia ora koutou. I'm Elena Siegfried, and welcome to this episode on building farm resilience as part of the Our Regenerative Future series. So today we are on the farm and we are discussing farm resilience in all its forms with two wonderful panellists, which I'll introduce to you quickly. Greg Hart, along with his wife Rachel, is transitioning their traditional sheep and cattle farm uh, station into a farm with um, regenerative farming systems, planting trees, sequestering carbon and building healthy soil. Mangarara Station near Ellsthorpe in the Hawke's Bay is also known as the Family Farm and it's a 610 hectare property that's an open to public living example of regenerative agriculture, which is really neat. They've got an eco-lodge there so you can go and see what's going on. Greg is a Bachelor of Agriculture from Massey and has previously worked in the in agribusiness consultancy, livestock export and grain marketing Gary Williams is a water and soil engineer, a biodynamic farmer, permaculture activist and teacher, and a natural philosopher. He's the author of several books, and along with his partner, Emily, um, has been living on a small farm where they run a diverse array of farming and forestry activities, from home gardens, orchards, staple crops, animal grazing, firewood and plantation forests, and wilderness teaching. So he's a long-time guru in this space. Um, wonderful to have you both uh, on the panel today. Now I would love to introduce, um, or rather let our two panellists introduce themselves and invite them to perhaps weave into your introduction what farm resilience actually means to you. Um, let's start with you, Gary. Okay, thank you, Alina. I suppose in terms of background and on the property we have here, which is quite a small farm it's, it's mainly a hill and so most of it's gone to forest well it was mostly in pasture and we came here <laughs> it's now largely in forest i mean it was a, it was a huge learning exercise for us and um i like to you know to sort of say that to people you know that um when you make mistakes that's good because that's how you learn you only learn by doing things and then trying to work out what happened because a mistake is just sort of happening which you can learn from. And, and it's really, that's what's really important, and I think, in terms of a regenerative type of agriculture, whatever you want to call it, you're going to be on a learning curve, you're going to be transitioning to something quite different. That's really important that you make mistakes because that's what resilience is going to, is going to be about, really, uh, learning from your mistakes. I'd actually just like to talk a little wider about resilience because – to me, it's, it's not something in itself. It's in context with what's a healthy ecosystem. There's a balance between productivity and resilience, and there's a constant sort of interchange goes on that maintains both productivity and uh, resilience, which is like repair and protection of the system under either internal or external 
threats or hazards that, that come along. So I'd like to actually start not with agriculture, but with ourselves. Uh, I think it's maybe easier to understand resilience in that way because we're an ecosystem, right? We're a living, breathing ecosystem. And when we take in food, some of that food is for energy and vitality to do work and that, right? So we um, take in food, we actually burn it. We burn carbs with oxygen, which we breathe in. And it's like burning in an engine as well. You actually burn and you cause damage by burning. And so the system has to repair itself constantly. There's this sort of balance going on. And so some of the food is just straight carbs, easy energy, sugars. Some of it's fats, slower burning, longer term energy. But all of that causes damage to our systems, to our cells, to our systems. So then we talk about antioxidants, right? Uh, and micronutrients that come in to do all the complicated repair, balancing, protection systems required to allow the body to remain healthy. So to me, we're healthy when we have the, the right balance between productivity or energy for work and repair protection type resilience. The, the tricky part of it is, is how our body knows when to repair what, with what and how. And it's highly complicated and it's a very diverse system. And the response has to be what I think is a really important word, in proportion. It's just be proportional to the issue or the problem, what's going on. And to give an example of that, the body sometimes overreacts and you get lots of inflammation all around the body and that's an overreaction. It's not in proportion and that's dangerous. So the question is, how do we maintain proportionality? How do we get the right information? So again, resilience to me comes from highly interconnected systems which provide information which allows proportionate action. So if you come to agriculture, and, and perhaps I will start with a more horticulture one, you need a lot of diversity, which is well-connected. I mean, diversity in itself just doesn't work. You can throw a whole lot of stuff there. That doesn't work. It's got to be well-connected. It's got to have the right feedback systems, and it's got to make appropriate responses. And to try and do that with our small brains ourselves in a management way is really, really difficult. So to me, regenerating or regenerative agriculture is about nature doing all that work because she knows how to do it. She's been doing it for millions of years. And we just come in as a small amount of energy, a small amount of management that maybe then allows us to take some resources from that um, system and we give back by our actions and our intelligence. Because when you're trying to get a resilient system by putting that in there to kill that weed or putting that in there to kill that bug or putting that in there to give a bit of nutrient, just about all the time you're going to be in wrong proportions and the system's not going to work well. And that's why I think our industrial agriculture is so lacking in resilience. It's so fragile for that reason. And that's why I see going over to something that is based on nature doing most of the work and thank you very much and getting things right and repairing things as, as required, then we're going to be much better off. So that would be my take on resilience. Thank you, Gary. Yeah, certainly a, um, a delicate balance to be, to be managing out there on the farm. Um, Greg, over to you. Kia ora, everybody. It's great to be here today. Resilience is really probably what put us on our path in changing the way we were farming and managing Mangarara. And that journey began about 20 years ago. And, and um, at the time, I guess we were thinking about the future and it was just having our first child and, and thinking about uh, the world that, that they were going to inherit. And then I guess at that time, you know, sustainability was kind of in our thoughts and understanding that uh, pastoral agriculture in New Zealand 
is based upon bringing you know nutrients from the other side of the world to keep our um, fertilizers on our pastures and, and keep the system growing. And so that didn't seem a uh, long-term sort of sustainable option for us, and, and especially when we consider the amount of energy involved with that and, and finite resources. And so that's sent us off on this very long journey, which I'm sure is going to last the whole of my life. And it has evolved over, I guess, the last 10 years or so of the awareness of the word regenerative agriculture. And we don't get hung up on on the words or, or the labels that we give it, but it is about the philosophy and the approach of working with nature, looking and learning from nature. Part, part of that also of regenerative agriculture is about building resilience into your system. For us, you know, that, that does start with the soil and it's also been about building a whole lot of diversity into our system, which is, has been um, not just adding a whole lot of trees, um, creating that space for nature as well as, you know, different production systems, which leads to different um, income streams. But also it's been about, you know, creating diverse sort of, you know, all the visitors that we get to, to our farm and a, and a whole lot of energy that sort of fuels us and keeps us going. And um, like Gary mentioned, I do think, you know, we can't leave out our personal resilience from this. And, and I think that has been a big part of, you know, the journey on the farm, because ultimately I think as we go through life and hopefully learn a few things along the way, we continue to evolve and deepen our understanding of what we're on this planet to do. And I think, you know, that starts to be reflected in the landscapes around us. And, and hopefully our, our landscapes are, are a lot diverse and, and hopefully, you know, beauty is a big part of, of what we do here. And so I think, you know, that's been a personal journey. And resilience also, as we've seen in Hawke's Bay this year, going through the drought and, and I guess, you know, with COVID and everything, is um, community resilience, which has been really important too. And um, just acknowledging, you know, that role of kindness and compassion and um, for people to support and look out for each other. So it is very broad, but it's all connected. Yeah, I think in both of, both of your answers there, you, you really um, touched quite a lot on resilience beyond just thinking about the environment. And that's something that often conversations around farm resilience are, are around the environmental factors, resilience from pests, from extreme weather events, from the sorts of droughts that we've seen um, this summer in the North Island. So, uh, Greg, I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to that community or emotional or social resilience that you think regenerative farming can help facilitate. I guess also, you know, as, as a view of resilience, it, you know, it is about our landscapes and, and the appropriate land use for, for the different land classes. And there also it's its ability of, of meeting, you know, the challenges that are just part of life, but I guess the ones that we don't expect every day and so it's just about not just bouncing back from those challenges that we face but it's it's about bouncing forward so that we continue to evolve and adapt and um you know become more resilient to, to the um challenges that that the future undoubtedly holds i guess you know on on a community level you know again we have had poppy renton has, has become a bit of a hero in hawks bay starting a facebook page which has given us the ability to connect as farmers and support and just share stories and just you know especially people on farms to know that you're not alone 
out there and and that there are others in the same boat and and I guess it was especially hard through COVID because the pubs were closed and we couldn't just uh, you know pop down and have a yarn with with all your mates over that time so you know, it was important to be able to connect and communicate and have that that support. Gary, did you have anything you wanted to add around social and um, community resilience? I know you've been working in this space a long time. The whole idea of growing food is to feed people and it's it's not, uh, well, it shouldn't be somebody doing one part of it and the other people are at the way at the end of some system and, and just buying in the supermarket. I mean, there's not many community-supported sort of agricultural sort of systems in New Zealand. There's one or two. It's it's, it's very prevalent in North America in particular. But there are there are different ways in which we can connect people between um, urban and rural and, and everything in between. I think that's that's what's really important. I think for any food system to be resilient requires again good conductivity, and that means human conductivity as much as you know. We tend to think of it as just something to do with nature. Well, we're nature too. <laughs> And we have to connect with each other and we have to support each other and we have to find ways of feeding back information which is which is appropriate and helpful. And, and I have to say, I mean, I, I come from a farming background. My um, parents were farmers and my, I still have a lot of family of farmers and, and that, and so my wife's the same. A lot of the feedback's not always helpful because <laughs> it's not aimed at trying to uh, help with the appropriate action that should be taken. Um, and so I think it's really important that people do relate to their food and try to understand it more, trying to what's behind that food and what's the uh, effect on both people and our wider environment from the, our, our farming methods and how can we help everybody in the system to be healthier. And then you can come back to, you know, to health because, I mean, a well-functioning ecosystem, is, we can call it healthy. So our food supply system needs to be healthy in terms of right, from, right through. And, and, of course, the problem is at the moment it's not it's very unhealthy in its sort of very linear connections, long distance transport, um, poor feedback between the people in the along the chain. Um, so, with people trying to promote organics and that, it was very much about people understanding where the food came from, how they can be involved with it. It's, it's actually, you know, it's, it's just as vital that part of the system as what happens on the farm. Just, I'd agree with that too, because I mean, it's been a big part of our journey is, is connecting people back with the farm. And um, I think that loss of connection is, is one of the biggest issues that results in, you know, the, the challenges, whether it be climate change or social issues and health issues out there is just that loss of connection with um, understanding how food is grown, where it's coming from and that. And so that's, that's a big part of, of this is educating and connecting people back to the land um, so they can make more informed choices and that whole thing about understanding that every dollar they spend on food is a vote for the kind of future we're going to have. So, yeah, connecting people back to the land and farms is really important. I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience um, this summer. You, of course, are in Hawke's Bay where there was a a pretty brutal drought. Um, Can you speak a little bit as to um, how it was in the Hawke's Bay and um, how you dealt with that on on your property? We, you know, gear up like most Hawke's Bay farmers for dry summers. Um, but I guess the way we do this a little bit differently is by um, having higher pasture covers and using holistic grazing management. So um, we do take more grass into the summer. So we've kind of got a hay shed full of grass already on our farm, which we can graze down, you know, through through that summer. And, you know, that, that is all about, um, you know, taller grasses, you know, with deeper root systems going into the ground. So accessing 
water deeper, you know, deeper in the soil profile. Also, you know, we're always wanting to keep the soil covered with our holistic grazing. Um, so, you know, the soil is never exposed to the sun and, and, and drying it out. Um, and then we have longer rest periods. So, you know, while we, we don't graze it right to the ground through, through that summer initially and, um, you know, give it a longer rest period so that it can recover. And um, so we, we did have, you know, good pasture and plenty of feed for our animals right through the summer where we sort of get a little bit um, where it got tough for us is when we don't get rain in April and May and because you kind of expect it to, to be raining there. And so we um, got through the summer perfectly okay, and um, but we have had to reduce our stock numbers going into this winter. But again, you know, grass grows grass and our um, pasture covers have bounced back really well. And so we're in a position basically now to um, restock the farm and um, we have saved ourselves a lot of stress through this time because it has been really hard for a lot of farmers. You know, there's been farmers that have been feeding out to their stock since February. Yeah, and that's tough and it's really expensive. Um, we haven't bought any feed and, you know, we haven't applied any nitrogen, but we're, we're still, you know, farming very profitably and each day at the moment I'm going out and shifting my animals and they're going into to pastures you know almost up to their knees and and you know they're well fed and and you know the other really big benefit of, of just this approach is as um you know for the mental well-being and welfare of, of the farmers and it does take a lot of lot of stress off and you know because we all love to see our animals healthy and and doing well and being well fed and so yeah we've we've been able to do that which is which has been really cool yeah, that's great. It's great to see a sort of a cascading series of effects there. If you've got a resilient farm, then the animals are more healthy. The farmers are faring better in terms of stress. Um, and really interesting to hear how those kind of regenerative methods can be helping retain the water. Um, so I'd love to ask a question now and refers to a Dominion Post article, a story called Fertilizers Are Vital. So perhaps this is a question for Gary. The, the article says there are misconceptions around soil health and regenerative agriculture, namely that fertilizer is counterproductive to both. This just isn't true. This is a quote. Most New Zealand soils, for example, are naturally poor in phosphorus. Um, your thoughts on that, Gary? Well, yeah, that's probably a big question, isn't it? I mean, um, they're actually not poor in phosphorus, they're poor in available phosphorus more, actually. And, and sometimes these details are, are important. Um, yeah, well, it goes right back to the heart of the, of the system you're trying to do in terms of um, fertiliser. I mean, systems obviously work well by themselves in nature they have for, you know, we've come along and we've changed the approach. And particularly... The problem with artificial synthetic fertilizers is it actually suppresses natural fertility of, of the system because it, it actually re- reduces the soil life and the structure of your soils. It gets affected and, and it doesn't regenerate properly. I mean, going on from what Greg said in terms of like, if you've got a system uh, of that type of grazing he talks about, then you've got more soil life, you've got better moisture holding capacity. The whole system has got much more... Um, capacity to, to last through um, events like droughts or whatever it is or, or storms as well because you've got the cover on that so the problem with the, the artificial fertilizers is, is it dumbs down the whole natural system and makes it much more fragile so of course you're, you're, then you're stuck with it then you you've got no resor- reserves so you have to keep applying it because it's 
the shore life is not active and it's not really a balanced system, then you get pest problems, you know, might come in, grass scrub things might come in or whatever might come infect your, your pastures or your crops or whatever. Um, and so you just get in the vicious cycle of more and more fertilizer and then more and more pesticides and herbicides and all sorts of other things that are going on that just spiral you into it. So you can keep doing that if you can keep getting hold of the fertilizers, if, you can, if you've keep got all that oil all that to run all those machineries to do it all, you can do it. But at some point we've got to get off that. We've got to get back to much more using the natural fertility there and generate more natural fertility so that then we can get a surplus for ourselves from that. And um, I suppose the most problematic agriculture to me, I put it this way, is what requires tilling because of our annuals. And that's basically vegetables and arable crops. They're annual crops. They need to be replanted every year. You need to do so and prepare the soil for it. And then you've got to look at the competition that comes from that prepared bare soil, which we call weeds or whatever it is. So you get into really a vicious cycle and and so to put my cards on the table i'm much more in favor or sympathetic to perennial systems um when you talk about perennials most people talk about or think about trees and horticulture net but what greg's talk about is a perennial system involving grasslands and large animals grazing recycling uh, the nutrients building up the soil carbon etc etc and it does it without having to till the soil without, without taking off the cover right so our most problematic agriculture to me is our staples, our wheat and oats and our veggies and the way it's grown in an industrial system. And if you knew, if people knew what was put on those veggies when they were growing, I live in the Horofenua, I could take you to places where they pour on toxic chemicals, one after the other after the other, and artificial fertilizers. Now that grows a type of vegetable but how good is that vegetable for you? It comes out of a very unhealthy uh, environment to me, and it's not that good in terms of keeping us healthy. So I think the people who talk about say, oh, yeah, no, where our soils are okay and we can keep applying fertilizer, need to step back and say, well, what are you trying to do here? You know, What sort of food are we trying to grow? What's the quality of that food in terms of its vitality and, and, and that? So... I mean, I've heard this argument, well, this thing so many times, I sort of put it to one side and I say, look, you do your own thing. You do your industrial agriculture. Let's get on with the people who want to get on with, with um, growing food well and, and in a way that gives you good natural fertility and vitality. Yes, I think, I think that's an interesting point there around investigating where the benchmark is that people um, keep pointing out that New Zealand has uh, world-leading agricultural systems and we certainly do do a lot of things well um, but we we still do them in a in a very unnatural way compared to how nature would be managing a system um, you made a good point there around um, fossil fuels and an uncertain future in terms of fossil fuels and I, Greg I know that you talked about that quite a lot in your article in terms of um, of reducing reliance on on imports from outside of the country and particularly in this time of, of global pandemic and the realization that this could be something that's in our future as waves of these sorts of global shocks. Can you speak a little bit to ceasing reliance so much on fossil fuels on your property? Absolutely. Um, and But just also like to cover off that question about fertilizer because it is key and, and it is fascinating and I can't answer it, but I was um, involved with a, a forum, the Better Futures Forum, 
putting in some feedback to what that group is doing at the moment. And of course, the issue of you know, fertilizer arises. And the reality is that you know, the current system is not sustainable. And so therefore, we have to look at alternatives. And that's what sent, set us off down this path. And like Gary said, you know, we are focusing on um, perennial production and creating those natural nutrient cycles as much as possible and returning as much back to the to the soil as we can and you know ideally as far as our sheep and beef production on this farm then you know I'd love to have a, a local abattoir and um, where we can compost the materials that are not consumed by humans back into into the farm system it'd be great to get the bones back because i think my understanding is that you know the phosphorus that we lose from our system is, is largely in the bones of the animals and and so again there's there's ways of composting them burning them back and reapplying it back to the soil you know again i'm, I'm not an expert on this but you know I've, I've heard people talk about um you know peak water peak oil and these challenges we face and peak phosphate is possibly another one that's right up there this century we do have to you know recycle as much as we can and keep it on on our properties but you know i think we're going to have to look at um an opportunity and and gary appreciate permaculture thinking is the problem is the solution and i know our local councils are having issue with their sewage ponds and that at the moment but you know if that could be processed like it is in some countries around the world and and again replied back and in, back into our nutrient cycles and i guess the other really big opportunity at the moment is um, through harvesting seaweed and perhaps capturing some of those nutrients that end in the ocean and getting them back onto our land as well. With the fertile, getting rid of the fossil fuels, we haven't gone down the track of those beautiful sunflowers that are in that picture behind you, Alina, and done those diverse crops. And um, just because, you know, I guess we were looking a little bit further ahead and, and you know, there's a lot of energy involved with, you know, cultivating and, and harvesting all those seeds and bringing them from all around you know, the country and, and getting them in. And I do appreciate at the moment that um, guys doing that are getting amazing results and we've got the energy. And so you might as well do that because they're getting some really great responses um, and benefits to their soil. But, you know, we're trying to get that diversity through our grazing management and also through planting trees. And I think the really big opportunity that we are missing at the moment in New Zealand is through silver pasture and agroforestry and including um trees into our landscape with grazing animals and a whole integrated system you know where there is a lot of opportunity at the moment um through um carbon schemes to to get extra income you know from from the land by clipping the carbon ticket while it's while it's here um but you know again through through diversity we are also going to be creating a bit of stock fodder for for animals through drought periods you know we can include some fruit and nut trees you know, in our, in our lines of, of trees that we're planting in our pastures and, you know, and it's just creating that whole biodiversity, which, you know, we just had a young fella just started working for us today and we're out shifting um, cattle and hadn't seen, whenever we shift cattle, we just get this big flock of birds come around our place and you know, because the grass is longer, there's the insects have had more time to breed and, and so as you put cattle into new pasture every day, they obviously kicking up a few insects and, and it's a it's a feast for for um, birds and again that's I think part of starting these natural cycles and back to those natural nutrient cycles you know the manure from from those birds that's going into the system and the insects and you know we're just connecting it all up again and 
and reconnecting a lot of those natural cycles. The trees are an interesting one and super important. And I think it was Kay Baxter who made the point in, in her article um, that the trees can often access the stores of phosphate that are much deeper down that pastures or other diverse um, pastoral plants can't get to. Um, Absolutely. And, and there's also the animal welfare issues too. You know, um, if we are to, you know, our export markets are going to, we want to be the best of the best and our animal welfare has to be right up there. And so um, I think it's important, especially, you know, in hot, dry Hawke's Bay that there's shade and shelter for our animals. So it ticks all the boxes and, you know, while there's, you know, opportunities through different council incentives and billion trees, well, not so much billion trees, unfortunately, that's all about, um, you know, there is opportunities to get native plantings on the farm, but so much of it is just, you know, blanket planting of trees. But there is this opportunity of, of sequestering the carbon and, um, continuing to produce food as we do it and and increasing the income that we're earning off the land at the same time and also building that resilience stopping wind putting shade so yeah that's that's a real opportunity yeah there's a big question there about what sort of trees we're planting isn't there greg i'd love to hear a little bit from you about um how you're approaching the mix of of different trees you're planting on your farm um and then then gary i'd love to circle back to you with a related question as well but Greg, um, if you want to comment on that first. Yeah, so I guess, you know, we're very fortunate that we formed a partnership with Air New Zealand. That has enabled us to identify some of the steeper, more erosion-prone land on our farm. And, and so with that community support or support from Air New Zealand, um, we've planted areas that have been, you know, livestock are excluded, and that is just for nature and regeneration. So we've identified those parts of the land um, and obviously, you know, waterways are all fenced off and planted. And then um, there is the matter of just integrating trees through the pastoral system. And, and again, you know, taking our learnings from nature, um, diversity is the key. And so we've planted, you know, many kinds of, of trees um, through the pasture. And, and that's an area that we're going to keep expanding on. So um, yeah, and, and of course, so it's just matching right tree, right places as our first part of that decision-making process. Thanks, Greg. Gary, I want to put to you a question that came through. Can you speak to any implications of the over-reliance on fast-growing non-natives, such as, as poplar and, and willow on farms? Okay, Lena, if I can just um, back up slightly with what Greg said, because I'm sort of, yes, 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 to everything sure. he's, he's saying there. And comment I'd like to make is that you know, trees are nutrient accumulators and they accumulate within the soil and then the groundwater will take those nutrients across the, the land. How you have trees on a, on a landscape is really important in terms of accumulating and feeding your, maybe your pastoral areas or your vegetable grown areas or whatever. There's, there's a whole interconnection in the landscape um, in terms of where you put trees and, and, and the benefits like what Greg talked about with the shade and the shelter and, and all that, but the nutrient accumulation is really important. And, um, and so there has to be a sort of a, an accumulative side as well as a sort of a, a take side. So there's a give and take. So you do take certain, um, um, nutrients off the farm, but you can also accumulate them on the farm by, by doing things with trees. And, and just I'd like to touch on the other point you made about birds because birds are great um, spreaders of, of uh, nutrients and seabirds in particular. And um, I was going to say we have, or it's more like had, huge lumps of seabirds in New Zealand. And that was one of the main ways that um, the nutrients from the sea get recycled back to the land. 
is by seabirds. Unfortunately, a lot of our seabirds are declining in numbers quite drastically. So we're losing that uh, recycling ability of birds, um, particularly um, nutrients from the sea back to the land. So that said, then what's the role of different trees uh, is a really interesting question. And a lot of it comes down to speed, I suppose, timing. It's like it, if you want to sequester carbon, for instance, actually the quickest way is what Greg's doing because uh, grasslands and animals will sequester it more quickly. They won't sequester it as much as trees and forests will in the end. So in the end, uh, a forest, particularly in its growth phase, will sequester a lot of carbon, and then even it's in its mature phase, uh, also re- um, hold that carbon re- and recycle it. So a lot of the trees that we grow, like poplars for soil conservation purposes on hill country, um, because they grow fast and they have deep roots and they help to stabilise the land more quickly. And so the same with, I'm well aware of from my professional work on rivers, that we use willows along river edges because they grow fast, they actually accumulate, take out um, too much nutrients from rivers very quickly um, and they can be managed to very easily to try and reduce erosions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why they're used. If you're going to use uh, a wider range of trees, then the first thing you'd have to do, for instance, along rivers, if I can go on that one, is give them a lot more room, a little bit more space have much wider berms and much uh, more extent of vegetation along them. And um, particularly the birds come in, they eat the buds, they poop, they drop the seed, the natives can come through, all sorts of reasons why. So to me, I don't think it's an either or. And, and if we started talking about horticulture, well, it's even more difficult because virtually all our horticultural crops, even diverse food forest ones, come from other ecosystems outside New Zealand. And we put together trees from all different ecosystems, put them together uh, and think, well, no, how are they going to grow as a, as a sort of um, a well-functioning ecosystem now with all these different ones coming from different places? And, but to me, it's, um, it's from a permaculture perspective, I say, well, what's there? What works well and how can we progress it or how, what succession can we have? I don't think it's an either or. It's a matter of, um, it's, again, it's a matter of diversity of thinking and diversity of action and, and that. And we can't sort of suddenly jump from one thing to another. Or well, if we do, we're going to have lots of consequences. So it, it's, it's a question that's a very quick, good question, but it, it's, it's a very long answer. <laughs> I haven't got time to go much further. Sorry. It's okay. We've got, we've got plenty of things to explore. But what, what are your takes on, on phasing out ruminants as far as regenerative agriculture goes? I know there's been a lot of discussion around this and, and the, the role of, of a whole systems approach. So Yeah, my understanding, and, and you know, this is an area that needs more work. And so you know, looking at um, white pastures um, farm white oak pastures in, in, in America who have done that analysis looking at um, their cattle production and what they what that's doing to greenhouse gases and comparing it with the impossible burger type, you know, vegetarian um, diet. You know, I think part of regenerative agriculture and it is a paradigm shift is um, the understanding that um, humans and our systems that we are managing can be part of healing and um, doing good on the planet as opposed to um, a lot of discussion, which is about just doing less bad. And so, you know, fr- from that study and, and a lot of work that is, that is underway now and understanding that pastoral grazing systems with ruminants are going to be sequestering more cover- carbon than they are emitting, 
Um, I was listening to a, a podcast yesterday. Uh, it's called The Regenerative Agriculture Journey Out of Australia, and, and they're doing some interesting research at the moment and research indicating that by feeding seaweeds and the enzymes in the seaweeds um, can reduce methane from animals by 90%. And um, so when you add, you know, diverse pastures and, and that, I think, you know, again, you know, there's reduced amounts of methane coming there. I don't think we fully understand the role of methanotrophic um, bacteria in the soils and their ability to sequester methane. And, and so, I mean, you know, sheep and beef farming in New Zealand, we're already 30% below what um, our greenhouse gas emissions were in 1990. You know, that is part of a natural cycle and it's an essential part, as Gary said, you know, harvesting um, that fast growing grasses and, and completing those, those carbon cycles going needs animals as part of, as part of that. And so, you know, and there's the whole, you know, fertility role that they have and, and, and the nutrients that they are returning back to the ground and all the microbiology associated with that. And so I think that I don't believe that, that um, yeah, we should be removing animals and particularly um, ruminants and cattle from um, our food system. I think it's an essential part of it. Thanks, Greg. Anything you'd like to add to that, Gary? Yeah, well, my comment would be it's, it's not what you're doing, it's how you're doing it. Which is really important, and, and and it depends. We keep saying in Pimicot, it depends. Depends on the place, depends on the climate, depends on the landscape. There's certain areas where you can really grow trees really well, and certain areas which are grasslands. Grasslands with large animals are part of the ecosystems of the world. You know, we we can manage them well, or we can and we manage them very poorly. Um, because we're very poorly managing pastoral animal farming, doesn't mean to say it has no place anywhere in the world, or that we can't do it well like what Greg is saying. So it's, it's much more about how do we go about doing it because it's all very well saying we'll put it all in, in the forest. And I'll come back to the point I made that how our veggies are growing and that sort of thing, and that's probably the most destructive type of industrial agriculture in terms of what's doing to the, to the, to the soils and the local environment. And so it's, we, can, we can sequester carbon in all sorts of different ways, and, and it comes back to diversity again. It's how... the as I said earlier, how the trees are in the landscape along with what grasslands, along with what might be done with some of the vegetables and that. And you can grow veggies along the edges of forest really easily. That's where a lot of them come from. Um, it's just that we don't do that. Um, and, to, and to sort of say, they take this sort of blanket saying, no, no, we've just got to get our ruminants. I mean, it's like, well, we, okay, then we should just get, get out of, of um, the type of market gardening we're doing now because, man, that's so destructive. And, and when you talk about methane, I mean, it's how it gets recycled is the issue, not that producing methane. The places that produce the most methane are tropical rainforests. They produce huge amounts of methane, far more than a pastoral farm will do, but it gets recycled within the system. Wetlands are great for producing methane, that's what they do. There's a breakdown system where they produce methane. And we get hung up on sort of the methane we measure somewhere on the farm, and we don't consider the methane we don't measure in our wetlands and forests. And we somehow think the methane on the farm is bad and the methane in the forest, well, we just ignored that. You know, I, I just don't think our county is very good at all, frankly. Again, the, the feedback information is not appropriate and so we keep making, in my opinion, the wrong choices. Uh, and, and unless we get the information, you know, a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more accurate, then I think we'll keep making these sort of broad statements about 
has to be like this, has to be like that. That's the problem with our culture. It's just like it's, okay, we've got a problem, find a solution. That's the solution, just do that. We don't mm-hmm. think about connections. We don't think about consequences. We don't think about the whole interaction that's mm-hmm. going to take place from, from that particular action. And that's what we need to do. We need to think about what are all the consequences? What are all the ramifications that are going to take place from doing that? Right? Socially, economically, environmentally, yeah? culturally too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and herein lies the problem with um, our predominant reductionist scientific inquiry to measure all these small parts of an inherently complex system. Um, we have a few more minutes here, and there's been a couple of comments around bees. Gary, what do you know about pollination security and threats such as the fallen economics of beekeeping? Well, I used to do beekeeping myself before the variety mite came, and <laughs> it was very difficult to do it without um, chemicals, but only in a small scale. And I'm, I'm no expert on pollination questions really i mean I, I just do note though that our insects are in huge decline not just bees um and that's clearly because of in my opinion uh, all the toxins that are spread around our landscape and and, and insects get particularly affected as the soil life so well, we have a wider issue i think than just you know pollination of some crops i mean insects uh you know, a huge slot of biomass and lands insects and 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 they have a really incredible role to play in any ecosystem and and we tend to ignore them because they're too small. Um, we think about bees because we know they pollinate some of our crops that we need to have pollinated. But we really need to look after, again, a wider question than just bees. Yeah, we, we, we can look at what might be affecting the bees and colony collapse and these sort of things that are going on and, and why that's the case. We do have frogs in our ponds in our place, but frogs are disappearing all over the place too. And all these creatures have a role in nutrient recycling that's important for the ecosystems. And, and so, you know, people say, oh, no, no, we can, we can just put fertilizer on or whatever. Come back to that same question, you see. Until you get off that sort of bandwagon. And, and the bees, it's just, it's just another one part of the whole, the whole issue, really. Thanks, Gary. We've got just a few minutes left here. So I'd love to finish with, um, and it'd be a nice way to finish if you could perhaps give one example each of what do you think, what would be the first step? Um, or if, if you could only take one step to make your farm um, a little bit more regenerative and more resilient, what would be the first thing that you would do? Gary, we'll start with you. Well, I'll tell you what I did do, plant trees and then then take stock off and allow trees to grow naturally. I mean, I mean, trees are great for all sorts of reasons that Greg's touched on as well. The comment I'd make though is it, it's part of a diversified landscape. So what type of trees becomes important as well? So it goes back to the question, that it depends. But that's certainly what I'd start to do. But, I mean, if someone's wanted to do the transition, then, yeah, they, from, say, it depends where you're coming from, where you're coming from market gardens or whether you're coming from pastoral. Well, say, say I take a market garden one because it's really hard. Then you need an area of grassland, you might say, which is your nutrient source or uh, margin trees, which is your nutrient source for your veggies that you're growing because you're taking a lot out of a small area when you're growing veggies and you need to get nutrients back into it. So if you're not going to do it through artificial fertilizers and have all those sprays, then you need to do it through either uh, managing the grassland and bringing the grasses uh, fertility into the uh, backyard area, which you can sort of do by catch, cut and carry, or then or use trees in an appropriately sided way that will accumulate and you've got to check where the water's flowing, where the groundwater's flowing to get the nutrients 
to to the market garden area, and, and that's not easy, but but that's where that's where you start. Greg, one thing that you would do. Um, I think the first thing that you have to do is understand that it is quite a mind shift and I think the way that you achieve that is probably by going and visiting another farmer that's you know already on the regenerative agriculture path and because generally you know I think that is the the hardest step to make because once you've made that step and you open yourself up to the possibilities, you'll find that people that are already on the path and it is becoming a groundswell at the moment, which is really exciting. And you find that these farmers um, are really excited about their farming and are really happy to share their experiences, their learnings, their failures. I know Taranaki, Northland, Hawke's Bay, we all have our own regenerative agriculture, Facebook groups and ways of connecting. And so first and foremost, um, open yourself up to the possibilities and um, then you're on the way. Wonderful. Just want to thank you both again um, for taking the time to be part of this conversation today. Um, It's been wonderful to have you both on here. So thank you so much again for joining us and we will catch you next week. To learn more about Pure Advantage and the work we do, go to pureadvantage.org and follow us on Instagram. If you found this conversation valuable, please rate this podcast, share and subscribe. Thanks for being on the journey with us. Kakitiana. Thank you.